It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. And you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of our Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or greedy, or swindlers, or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, a slanderer, a drunkard, or a swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. Well, good afternoon, or good evening, I should say. Um, and uh, thank you for coming along today, particularly if you're visiting us for the first time or you're a fairly, fairly recent visitor, you're, you're really welcome here. And it's such a privilege to, um, to be able to speak in this building. This, uh, so grateful to um, Abbey Hill for the fact that they let us meet here in the afternoons. And uh, it's so encouraging to see what God is doing in, in this congregation. But um, rather like Bob said last week... Um, Sometimes that there are, there are easier passages of scripture to preach from, and sometimes there are slightly more difficult passages to preach from. And I think this is probably one of the more, more difficult ones, but hopefully there'll be some great things in here for us to learn from today. But before we get into the passage, I just wanted to take you to Iraq in 2006. Now, the Iraqi war that the US with, with some of their allies fought uh, from 2003 onwards and it's still not completely out of it yet has actually had one of the biggest tolls of soldier casualties that the US have suffered since probably the Vietnam conflict 50 years ago it, the, the conflict started back in about 2003 um, really as a response to what happened on September the 11th 2001 uh, where it was felt that was needed to, a proper response in Afghanistan and then in Iraq, really to try and root out the terrorist threat that the US and its other allies were feeling. But unfortunately, like so many uh, conflicts, they went in not particularly well prepared. There was a massive issue with under-resourcing in the army. And um, in the case of Justin Watt... He was a soldier who'd recently been recruited into the US forces. It was his first active campaign that he saw. And when he arrived out in, um, 
in, in, in sort of 2004, 2005, he found that his platoon uh, was suffering casualties almost on a weekly basis. So the group that he started out with in his platoon, by 2006, around half of them had either been killed or seriously injured. Imagine putting yourself in that, in that situation. Most soldiers on the front line in Vietnam, for example, would usually be expected to do about two weeks on the front line, then they would be taken off active service. But in Iraq, their tours of service were often 12 months or more. Can you imagine that as a young man or woman in your 20s having to deal with that kind of horrific sort of death and, 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 and all those things happening on a, on a daily basis? And then one day in March 2006... Um, one of the local Iraqi soldiers came to the gate of the thing and said that a terrible thing had happened and, and said that uh, there had been reports that uh, a house had been attacked in a local village uh, and a family had been murdered. Two adults and their two children had been murdered. And what was worse, that uh, the older of the children had been raped and the body had been set on fire. Now, it was immediately thought that this would be the work of uh, the local militia, uh, the sunny insurgents. But Justin Watt, who was a soldier there, was, said it didn't seem to ring right what had happened. This was not the kind of thing that the insurgents would do. And then, a little while later, someone confessed to him from his unit that he had been the lookout, and actually that terrible crime had been perpetuated by U.S. soldiers. Now, can you imagine yourself in that situation where you suddenly have that knowledge that half of your platoon who's left, five of them are likely to be criminals? And he agonised over what he should do. But he felt that the right thing to do was to report this up the chain. So at great personal cost, he reported it. And initially, he wasn't believed. It was felt he was making it up. But he was eventually given some credit someone else testified and the criminals were, 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 came before court-martial and they were tried and they were found to be guilty of this terrible crime. But even after then, Justin Watt had to endure some real difficulty in the army where people felt that he'd betrayed his own. And he, he was interviewed afterwards and he said there were two things that really struck him from that awful experience. The first thing was, he said, as you grow up in life, you look at your parents and you think they're in, your, your parents are superhuman, they're incredible. And then I think you get to about the age of 12 or 13 and you start to realise that they are actually human beings after all. My children are certainly at that age now. And he said, and, and you tend to elevate people in life. And he said, when you come into the army first, do you think that those soldiers who've been serving and acting and defending their country, they are, they are superhuman? But he said, you realise serving alongside them that they are human beings just like you and me. But the other thing that he said was that the actions of a few can spread like a cancer if unchecked. And thinking about that, he said within the army, most, most people serving in the army are good, honourable people. But like any element of human life, you can get a small number who can behave badly and can create problems for the whole thing. And there's a huge issue, if that, and his view was, if that isn't dealt with, within an armed regiment. He said it can have a debilitating effect on morale. Now, why do I tell this story? What's the relevance of this? 
Well, this is, in a sense, a modern parallel to some of the stories, some of the issue that Paul is talking about here within 1 Corinthians 5. So we, we go back, we go back 2,000 years nearly to Corinth in 54 AD. One of the really encouraging things I'd say of the last sort of two or three years as we've been in Ephesians, we're now in 1 Corinthians, um, and we look very briefly about the church in Antioch, is that actually the the early church that was 2,000 years ago, there were so many different things that happened in that church that have been written down here for the benefit of us today. And we see parallels with the church today within that early church. And in this particular case, what we're dealing, as Bob explained to us last week, we are dealing with a broken church in 1 Corinthians. One that Paul is really struggling with. And his teaching here is to try and put them back on where they should be. Because the particular issue that's being dealt with here, and we'll go on to look at it in a moment, brings up the question of judgment. How often do we hear as Christians that the Christians are judgmental? They're judgmental amongst themselves, but particularly they're judgmental to outsiders. And and this, this, this passage brings up this question of how we should deal with issues of judgment in the church and outside of the church. Because the real issue at the heart of this and this is the, 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 the essence of what Paul is, is seeking to do in the passage today, is to come back to the question of holiness, the value of the holiness of God's people. We're going to look at the passage in three different parts. Firstly, we're going to ask the question of not taking pride in sin. Secondly, the fact that sin actually affects the whole church. So rather like Justin Watt was talking about how those criminals were affecting the debilitating effect on the whole regiment, we'll see here how unchecked sin, unrepentant sin, can actually affect the whole church. And thirdly, the church's business is to live by God's standards. So let's go into the passage then. If you've got your Bible in front of you, have a look at those first few verses. Verses 1 and 2. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you have rather gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? We're dealing with a serious matter here. We're dealing with something here that is nothing other than a case of incest. How a man is sleeping with his stepmother. And Paul says, this is the kind of thing that even the pagans, even those outside the church, would not tolerate. And yet, what is the reaction of the Corinthian church? You are proud. They're proud of what is going on. And you think, how how can a church get into this situation? How can it get into this situation? Well, we only have to put a mirror up to our own church today to think, well, how can we get very mixed up in this kind of situation? You see, the church today, parts of the church today, are desperately keen 
to sh- as they should, to be loving and welcoming to those who don't know Jesus Christ. And that's absolutely right. All parts of society being loving and welcoming. But the mistake that the church so often makes is that in order to be truly welcoming, they have to imitate the behaviour of the world. And, that, and, and this was the problem. This was the problem that the Corinthian church were falling into, is that they were so proud that they were actually imitating the world around us, around them, of, of, of being so, so relevant, that they were ignoring the fact that actually they were tolerating continual sin within their midst. And it, and, it, and it was becoming a huge issue within the church. What does Paul say that they should have been doing with this situation? He said, shouldn't you have gone into mourning and have put out the, of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? See, instead of being proud, instead of celebrating what should have been going on, they should have been behaving like uh, something had died. In fact, um, if you look at the words of, of Jesus in Matthew 5, 4, Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. Actually, this recognition of mourning is a godly characteristic. And actually, only two verses later in, in Matthew 5, 6, Jesus then goes on to say, blessed are those who th- hunger and thirst for righteousness. This is not what the Corinthian church was doing. They were not looking for righteousness. They were, in fact, celebrating continual, unrepentant sin within their midst. Because the truth is that toleration of sin, and when we talk about this, we're recognising the fact that every church congregation, every church congregation, all of us are sinners, all things happen in our lives, and, and actually, as, as a group of pastors here, we, we will know about things, we will hear about things, and they'll be dealt with quietly. But the kind of sin that's being talked about here is one where the elders would have approached the, the person in question, will have uh, pointed this out and, and asked them to sort of uh, address their behaviour, but there would have been an unrepentance amongst the church. And it would have become a public issue. And this is where the sin has started to affect the whole church. Let's go on to, to look at verses 3 to 5. For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So that when you are assembled, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. It's quite big stuff, isn't it, here? What does what is Paul instructing the church to do with this individual? Well, we see in verse 5, they're instructed to hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. What does that mean? Well, actually, what he's, he's asking the church to do is to put this man out of fellowship with them. He's asking them to leave, effectively, the membership of the church. 
And why? It's actually for the good of the individual. Because if they carry on tolerating a bad thing that's going on, it's going to create problems not only for the church, but for him as well. So this is the only proper thing that can be done. But look at this. Really interesting. And why? So that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Because this man's spirit is the most important thing. The hope is that he will go out of the church and he will realise the magnitude of his sin. And, And there is hope, hope, that he will be restored. And that is the wonderful truth of grace. We've been singing songs today on the theme of grace. Because within this passage, even though it's on a really difficult area, that of discipline within the church, of keeping the church's integrity, you can see grace within it. The fact that the the desire is for people to stand on the day of the Lord, to stand on the day of judgment and be redeemed. Because the point is, we all sin. We all fall short of the glory of God. And there is nothing that we can do individually as we stand to somehow get to to, to God or, 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 or by our behaviour or whatever. No, that has only been done by what Jesus Christ achieved on the cross, where he stood in our place. And through that, through that, we can stand on the day of the Lord and and be cleared completely of any wrongdoing at all in our lives. That's That's the message of grace. It's nothing that we've done at all. And that is the aim here, that he would be saved on the day of the Lord. Nothing that we've done at all. Nothing. Only what Jesus has achieved on the cross. And what does Paul go on to say in the next few verses? Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, to many of you, this will be a familiar image from the tent in the summer. Here's the the, the judging panel on on the British Bake Off. And you can see that they are actually doing some baking on this particular occasion. Um, and so any, any of you who've watched um, baking things like this will, will, will probably have some knowledge of the workings of yeast and how, and how it works um, ever since we've been married Anna and I have had um, a, a mechanical bread maker we make bake bread every night but um, we're, we're very utilitarian in how we use our, our yeast we use dried yeast every night bakes the bread, never see it again the yeast does its job but there are some strange people who uh, cultivate their own wild yeast. I have a colleague at work who does this, who brings in a, a loaf of bread every Monday, beautifully baked. He calls it his artisan bread. And apparently has a, he has a little culture of yeast. And what he does every week is he puts the, he bakes on a Sunday afternoon, he, he, he puts his yeast in and it goes through the whole of the dough. And just before he puts it in the oven, he takes out a bit of dough and uses that 
for the next batch, which he's going to do the following week. And um, but but I mean, every, every so often you have to sort of throw throw this out because the yeast goes bad. And, and that's traditionally the way that bread was made. You would keep a little bit of the culture, so it would go through the whole thing. And, and what Paul's saying here is that actually yeast is an incredibly powerful thing. Because yeast, you only need a little bit of it, and it will work through the whole dough. And what's he saying to do here? Get rid of the old yeast. Why? What's he talking about? Well, he's saying that if you allow unrepentant sin to carry on in your congregation, it will spread like a yeast. And ultimately, it will corrupt the whole of the church if it's left unchecked. And then he brings in, actually, this wonderful image back from Exodus. And he he talks about things that actually, for those who were Jews, they, they, they would completely relate to. He talks about this need to become like an unleavened batch. Because here we have Christ in verse 7, the Passover lamb. What was foretold was that Jesus, the, Passo, the Passover lamb would be sacrificed. And, 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 and the Jews would come out of Egypt. They'd be delivered from Egypt into the promised land. And as part of the recognition of that, they would eat unleavened bread. In other words, bread that was pure. The, the yeast effectively signifying sin. And if that yeast wasn't there, what does it say in verse 8? Leavened, not leavened with malice and wickedness, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And that's what Jesus Christ, through the sacrifice, was going to achieve. And that's why Paul said it's so important to address matters of sin because the lamb has been sacrificed sin is behind us sin should be rejected we can we can move on on from sin because jesus christ has won the ultimate victory now philip schofield has um, been in the headlines this week um very strange aside I, i i got a call on the 3rd of january um, asking um, from a producer of the programme which he's on this morning, asking if a group of people from Kenilworth Community Church would be interested in appearing on this morning. Uh, and I explained who we were and what we were about, and I didn't get a further call back. Um, it was all to do with some community group wanting to get, put their Christmas decorations away. But um, he, he's been in the news this week um, because he has decided to come out as being gay this week. Uh, and there's been a lot of written about actually the courage with, with how he's done this, um, but also there have been some interesting articles actually written, written about what the effect has been on this announcement in terms of the effect on, it, on, it, on his own family. And it's an interesting kind of perspective on our society today about how, how our society deals with something like that. Now I know some, some men in particular who, who are in public ministry who suffer with the same kind of issues that Philip Schofield has talked about, suffer in particular with things like same-sex attraction. And they've said that actually when things like this happen, it makes it doubly hard for them because they they know that that they suffer from particular issues in this area. 
And actually, they, they fight hard not to give in to those things, to those urges, because they, because they, they know in that sense they're wrong, but also they would cause real damage to their congregations. There was a minister 20 years ago who was a very, very prominent writer and preacher who ended up very, very similar situation to Philip Schofield. And, uh, he left his, his wife and his family, uh, to go and live with a man. And it had a debilitating effect on his congregation. Um, and, 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 and actually really sadly on him as well. And he started to reject everything that he taught. He was burning books that he'd written because of the, of, of the effect of that. Because the thing is, unrepentant sin, issues like this within the church can have a really huge impact on the church. It's not an individual matter. It becomes a public matter when these things happen. Because the thing is, we are called to live as a community. We are Kenilworth Community Church. The word community means something. It means that actually we don't just live individualised lives. We live as a group, of community of Christian believers together. We are Christ's representatives here on the earth today. And the world will judge us in a way that it doesn't apply judgments to other people. One of my colleagues um, was asking me what I was doing uh, this weekend, so I was up front, and I said, I'm, I'm preaching uh, on 1 Corinthians 5. And she said, oh, what's that about? And I said, well, it's interesting. It's all about discipline within the church and the church trying to stay holy in the world. And I said, what, what, what do you make of that? She said, well, actually, I think actually that's quite an interesting area. This, this lady wasn't a Christian at all. She said, because when you see scandals about abuse within the church and, and everything else, it really undermines the message of what the church is saying, doesn't it? And I was thinking, thank you. That's, that's, that, that's the thing, because, because the world looks at the church, and if the church is not living up to the standards which the world believes the church should be doing, it undermines what they're about. Because the church's business, is the third point, is to live by God's standards. Now, I like this quote by J.S. Mill from about 1847. It said, bad men need nothing more to compass their ends than that good men should look on and do nothing. And it's a challenge to us, isn't it? Often the world will carry on in the world's way. But the world is actually looking to the church sometimes to set an example for how we should be living. So we look at these last few verses... I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all, meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do you not even eat with such people? What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. You see, what Paul's saying here is actually something that is levelled often at the church that, 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 that is wrong. It is not the business of the church to judge people outside of the church. And, and so often Christians have sort of fallen into the trap of this putting themselves above people. 
developing an almost holier-than-thou attitude. Now, all the church should be concerned about is those within membership who are professing believers within the church itself. Paul is very clear indeed on that. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? But he does say at the same time, you must not associate with someone who claims to be a brother or sister, but who's sexually immoral, um, greedy, swindler, idolater. Somebody who's carrying on in unrepentant sin is somebody who the church as a whole must deal with. And this is only where it's got to that sort of public level. And Paul's very clear about it. Do not associate with them. Do not even eat with them. Because Paul recognises here that sin within the church is a serious, serious matter. The church is called to be God's representative here on earth. And if the church themselves cannot live up to those standards, it doesn't say very much about what the people within it actually truly believe in. And this is so often the mistake that churches in our society make. They feel in order to be accepted by the world, they have to be like the world. Well, actually, that is not what it is saying here at all. We have to strive to be distinct from the world. And we're, we're all placed here in Kenilworth, in this town. And I wonder what the people of Kenilworth regard of the church or the churches in this town. What is it that people are looking for about the church? Well, as Gandhi once said, I might be able to believe in your redeemer if you looked a little bit more redeemed. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because in truth, there's a, there are two things that we need to be as a church. One, we do need to strive for holiness. We need to strive to the live to the standards which we espouse. Because the world around us will expect us to live to those standards. But at the same time, we are to be like that church in Antioch, in, in, in Acts. That church where there is such love, such depth of love for those within that congregation that they were the first ones to be known as the Christians. Because the people outside, the outsiders saw that that church's love for Christ was such that it translated into love for one another in an incredible way. And our challenge for us in Kenilworth is to think, how can we be that radical church where people are drawn into this place because of the love and the care that we have for each other as a community of believers here in Kenilworth. But equally uh, a community that wants to strive to live holy lives. That isn't judging people outside the church for the way that they live their lives. How can we expect that? Paul says that's not a reasonable thing for us to do. Only God will judge people outside of the church. But actually one who lives strives to live those distinct lives. Because we have this incredible message of grace. It doesn't matter what you have done in your life. There is no sin that God is incapable of forgiving. Because there's nothing that you can do. Whether it was my sin that I did this morning, 
whether it was your sin that you did yesterday, whether it was the sin of the Corinthian church, people in the Corinthian church 2,000 years ago, it doesn't matter. Because the cross is the place where the sin went to die. Where Jesus took that sin on himself so that we might go free. And all we need to do, all we need to do is come and say we're sorry. We accept that we've got it wrong. We want to follow Jesus Christ. And he will equip us with his spirit to help us to live lives in recognition of that. And that's a wonderful message to take out to the world. Because as a church, we are witnesses to the world of life lived to the full with Jesus Christ, of authentic lives of integrity. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that it isn't always easy, actually, for us to read these things and think, well, okay, how how can we deal with this in, in our particular context? But we know and we thank you for the fact that all scripture is breathed by you and useful for teaching and rebuking us. And sometimes we, 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 we repent of those times when we revel in our sin, when we're too proud to admit that we have got it wrong. Help us, Lord, where we have that unrepented sin in our lives. If it's private, we repent of it. If it's public, we repent of it. Help us to deal with that. And also pray for us as a church, because actually sin is to be dealt with as a church as a whole. It's not a privatised thing. And we pray that you would help us when we come across these matters as a church, giving us the wisdom to know how to deal with them. But above all, make us a loving church in the right way. Make us welcoming and loving to those outside of the church so that it would see us for what we are, community of your believers here in Kenilworth. Pray that you help us and equip us as we go out today with this.